The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So on December 21st, 2015, there was a monumental milestone uh, that was reached in space travel where for the first time in history, a company called SpaceX uh, successfully launched into space the Falcon 9 rocket on an orbital launch mission and then achieved what they called a controlled vertical landing. Uh, Later in uh, April of 2016, uh, they reached another milestone by landing that another rocket, a booster rocket, not on land, but on a drone ship in the ocean. Uh, Previous to this technology, the assumptions that that NASA used and other private companies used was that the, the booster rocket that got the shuttle into space would simply use up its fuel and then free fall back to Earth um, with parachutes into the ocean, and then it would need to be located. They would send a big boat to go and tow it back and, and then haul it back, examine, refurbish, and if it wasn't damaged, they could possibly reuse it. As well, there was this external tank. If you see pictures of the space shuttle where Uh, there was an external tank that fed fuel to these booster rockets. And that was completely discarded. And so that would be um, basically disintegrate uh, in the atmosphere and then fall into pieces back into the ocean. So what Elon Musk and his team of engineers did for SpaceX was that they challenged these previous assumptions. And they, they argued that if you can somehow land the rocket back intact, that you would save enormous cost and time benefits, and you would, you would be able to bring economies of scale into space travel. Now, that first stage booster rocket, is, it accounts for about 75% of the total cost of a space launch. And so if these rockets can be reused over and over again, SpaceX could offer these savings to their customers and therefore increased opportunities to explore space. The results have been astounding. Since 2010, June of 2010, rockets from the Falcon 9 family have launched 75 times, with 73 full mission successes, one partial failure, and one total loss. That's pretty good stats, isn't it? Not only that, but they have landed successfully, vertically, the rocket, 43 out of 51 attempts. And 19 of those rockets have been used for a second mission, and three of them have been used three times. This has really affected the cost. And so between 1970 and 2000, the cost to launch a kilogram into space was about $18,000 per kilogram. And so when the space shuttle was in operation to launch about 28,000 kilograms into space, they spent $1.5 billion. And if you translate that, that's about $55,000 per kilogram. 
SpaceX, when they were bringing material up to the International Space Station, was able to do it for just over $2,000 per kilogram. That's over a 95% reduction in cost uh, by their innovation and by challenging some of those assumptions. Their newest rocket, uh, the Falcon Heavy, is estimated to cost about $90 million per launch. And this is the design that will eventually send people into space. While the space shuttle that you see on the, on the other uh, side of that slide costs about $450 million to launch. $90 million versus $450 million. It's amazing, isn't it? There, let me show a, rich, a recent clip of the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch that happened in February of 2018. It was a big event. And the, the, the Falcon Heavy is basically three Falcon 9 rockets, booster rockets, and they were able to successfully land those three rockets back on Earth after it deployed. Let me show this clip to you. Space uh, organizations, government or, or commercial, have set their sights too low. They've, they've really gotten built relatively small rockets. Um, and Falcon Heavy is the first time that there's, there's something that's arguably even in the super heavy class, or somewhere between heavy and super heavy. You know, five million pounds of thrust is really crazy amount of power. Uh, more than twice as much payload as any other rocket. It can launch things direct to Pluto. No stop needed. Hotels in the area are completely sold out. Parking yeah. lots are packed. It's like the first time something exciting has happened in rocket launch in a very long time. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. T minus 15, standby for terminal count. SpaceX Falcon Heavy, we go for launch. And nine. All systems combined. Eight. Three. Six. Five. Four.
So this um, just explain they they actually mounted a Tesla because it, it wasn't a human man. It was a marketing ploy to also uh, cross market Tesla. Um, and doesn't that video give you chills? I know when I watched it, I was I thought it was so cool. And you know this whole idea that this one company uh, challenged prevailing assumptions and and re-engineered. Um, possibility of landing a rocket back on Earth um, has now opened up all these new possibilities and, and a new frontier. In fact, they're, they're currently working on a project to launch uh, 12,000 satellites into space where they will provide global broadband internet. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, to all the different countries of the world that may not have access. Now, not as dramatic as that, but in my life over the last five years, I, I feel that God has used this topic of the theology of work uh, to, to open for me uh, new possibilities of how I think about work and faith and what it really means to serve God uh, with my life. It's given me a, a newfound sense of freedom and, and passion and uh, it's, 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 a, it's a topic that I, I'm very passionate about, as you, as you may know. Uh, I, I lead the, um, the Thrive at Work ministry here at, uh, the, among the Thrive churches. And what the ministry is really aiming to do is to educate and to empower our members on how do we integrate our faith uh, into the marketplace. And so every time I speak, I'll probably touch a topic on this, on this, in this area. Uh, I currently work full-time as a uh, program manager at Blue Cross Blue Shield within their government division, and I uh, spent close to 20 years working in the healthcare industry. And so this, this topic is a, a passion for me. And um, prior to my understanding of, of this theology of work, um, I, I actually had some wrong assumptions. And perhaps as I share some of these assumptions that 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 you share some of these things. Um, I, I believe before that, uh, I sincerely believe before that work was generally good, but that, again, the most devoted Christians would, would take the call to be a pastor or even a missionary, and that <clears throat> I had a skewed view that those of us that were maybe in other roles, secular vocational roles, that our primary duty was to somehow support those workers, those kingdom workers, um, and to, to finance and support them as they do the real work, the real spiritual work of the kingdom. In my old framework, I actually viewed church as a very center of all spiritual growth and activity, and that a life honoring to God meant heavy, heavy involvement in the church, and you know, everything that was tied to spiritual life was tied to the church. I, I saw my work in my early years as a means to an end. I, uh, I thought of it as a way to finance me and my family and, and the church. And, and then I also thought of it as a place for evangelism. But beyond that, I didn't really think much about work. And when I thought about my own spiritual life and my own spiritual growth, I confined it to either a very personal space between me and God or uh, activities in the church. And so this idea of bringing my faith into the regular 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, was a concept that was not very uh, 
real to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I carried a real heavy burden, a, a heavy sense of guilt that somehow my choice of vocation working in the corporate field was not fully pleasing to God and that I, I felt like I had to do more, therefore. I had to devote more time and volunteer more. And I don't know if you've ever thought this. Maybe you have. But when I was younger, I used to think, okay, one day, if I, when I get older, I'll, I'll go to missions. Or one day I'm going to give a big check to the church, and that will justify why I went you know, into the business world. Perhaps some of us here, uh, we struggle with this line of thinking. Maybe you're not, you weren't as extreme as I was. But my hope is that through the ministry at Thrive, at Thrive at Work, that our hearts and minds will be transformed, that we will rethink on this topic of work and faith, and that the work is not necessarily that honors God, isn't necessarily confined just to church or mission activities. Now, there are a lot of topics that we can cover uh, on this topic, but there's one topic that I, I feel is often neglected and uh, isn't talked about very much, and actually... I feel like it's the one area that God has personally been challenging me the most. Uh, He's been showing me and and pointing the finger in my heart the most uh, on this topic. And it's on the topic of the role of work, the role of work in my spiritual formation and growth. What role does work in our workplaces have in my spiritual and character formation? How does God use our workplace experiences to help us grow closer to Christ? How does God use our workplace experiences to help us grow spiritually? I I believe that many of us, we we actually dismiss the workplace as a place that God is using to help us grow. But I believe, I believe honestly with all my heart, and I want you to walk away from today's message believing that our workplaces, our workplaces are one of the primary avenues that God is using to grow us to Christian maturity. I believe that our workplaces are one of the primary avenues that God is using to grow us to Christian maturity. Now, when I say workplace, I want to clarify, that it doesn't just apply to those of us that go to like a corporate job. or that It's applicable to this idea of that, that we, we all do work every day. Regardless of pay and title. And so today's message and the principles that we're going to talk about today applies the same to the, to the stay-at-home mom as it does to the realtor, as it does to the dentist, to the doctor, to the pastor, and to me uh, who is in the corporate field. So let me first ask a question. Let me ask a question for us. Why don't we think of work? Why don't we think of work as a place for our spiritual growth Information. Well, one of the reasons may be that when we think of spiritual growth, when you think about spiritual growth, the first thoughts that come to your mind is spiritual activities around like disciplines, prayer, the word, worship, perhaps even church activities. And so traditionally, because traditionally you don't necessarily do those things at work per se, you don't pull out your Bible and, and necessarily read at work or uh, you don't, you're not singing songs at your desk or something like that. that. That perhaps that's why you don't think of your workplace as a place for your growth or spiritual formation. Another reason may be that when you think about work and, and then you, you try to infuse spiritual concepts to it, that the only place your mind goes is on our witness and evangelism. And that 
that that's really the primary reason why we're at work. And that is important. Um, maybe, uh, perhaps for some of us, uh, it could be tied to the way that you view God and the way that you think of God. That God is, is sovereign and he is powerful. And so he doesn't, maybe he's not that interested in, in our, you know, us finishing a spreadsheet on time or he's not that interested in, in us changing diapers, or he's not really interested in the, in the smaller details. He's focused more on expanding his kingdom to the unreached places, and, and these kind of trite things that don't really matter that all that much to him. Maybe you've grown up in a church atmosphere where your church leaders didn't really talk that much about spiritual life and work. Um, and, and so this is, a, this is something that you, you've never really associated before in your life. You know, a lot of this thinking um, can be tied to this, this term that we use in the theology of work called the, the sacred-secular divide that often happens in our life that cripples so many believers across every generation of believers that have ever existed. And this secular-sacred divide is basically a worldview where... Um, oh, sorry, you're not able to see that really well, so I'm going to read that for you. Um, where you basically simplify your life into two buckets. You have two buckets in your life. You have the, the spiritual, sacred bucket, and then you have the worldly, secular bucket. And, and everything in your life either goes into one of those two. So within the, the secular, I mean, within the sacred bucket, you know, anything that, is, that you, you deem as pure or, or eternal or, or spiritual or heaven-bound or or, or church-related goes in that bucket. And, you know, everything that is secular in the secular bucket is those things that you consider to be worldly and, and, and physical and that won't last and one day will, will, will pass away and is tied to maybe the activities that unbelievers do. This is the great challenge of, of many of us is that we somehow organize our life around those two buckets uh, when I was growing up, for example, just to give you an example, like music, you know, like our, our pastors told them, don't listen to secular music. And so, you know, we listened to DC Talk and, and Petra and, and Vineyard and, and uh, you know, music like that. And, you know, Vanilla Ice and, you know, um, I don't know, just these other, you know, secular music that talked about romance that, that we shouldn't listen to that because that was going to infect us. And so we... We, we, we threw it away. The only exception was U2. My youth pastor said U2 is okay because they, they kind of talk about God. So we, we were allowed to listen to U2. Um, that kind of thinking was actually very prevalent, actually, for me growing up. And I, I organized my life around that. Um, and what happened was that uh, anything that related to the physical world, I was very skeptical of and. And I associated all spiritual activities to church activities. And so what happens is that you begin to kind of insulate yourself and live in this Christian bubble. And then when you become a parent, you're very busy and trying to create a life where only those, you try to surround your kids with as many spiritual things as you can. You know, get them to look at spiritual Christian videos on YouTube. And, you know, you try to just move them in that realm. There's a quote by A.W. Tozer that is probably my favorite quote on this, and this is what he says. He writes this in the, in the book, The Pursuit of God. He says, One of the greatest hindrances to inter- internal peace 
which the Christian encounters is a common habit of dividing our lives into two areas, the sacred and the secular. As these areas are conceived to exist apart from each other and to be morally and spiritually incompatible, and as we are compelled by the necessities of living to be always crossing back and forth from one to the other, our inner lives tend to break up so that we live a divided instead of a unified life. This is the old sacred secular antithesis. Most Christians are caught in this trap. They try to walk the tightrope between the two kingdoms, and they find no peace in either. I believe this state of affairs to be wholly unnecessary. The sacred secular antithesis has no foundation in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is our perfect example, and he knew no divided life. If I was honest with you growing up, and even some of the struggles I have even today, I do sometimes feel like there is this Monday morning when I get to my work that there is this division between my life at work and this life in the church or in my small group. And yet we must pursue this unified life that we see in Christ. I love this quote because it gives us an example of Christ himself as a model for us to look to. And I believe that our workplaces can be one of the primary avenues for God to form us because I believe when we look at Christ's life that the workplace was pivotal to his spiritual formation. The workplace was pivotal to the spiritual formation of Christ himself. Now, where do we see this? Well, we know that in scriptures that in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that Jesus was, what, a carpenter. It says, it's not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. Now, what was explained to me in my class as I uh, further explored this was that that word carpenter is actually kind of misleading because Nazareth and Galilee in that region actually didn't have that many trees. And so if you visited that region, you would not see that many trees and forests there. It's kind of a dry and, and desert area. And so this word carpenter is actually translated in the, in, in the original uh, as the word tecton. And this tecton word more, more closely resembles the word builder or um, in our context, it means someone who works with wood, but also with is broader, with like is a mason who works with stone, even metal. Uh, a scholar, Ken Campbell, he, this is what he says about the word tecton. In the context of first century Israel, the tecton was a general craftsman who worked with stone, wood, and sometimes metal in large and small building projects. In a land of omnipresent stone and a few trees, a craftsman of Jesus' day worked primarily in stone and much less in wood and metal. Such a craftsman is called a builder, and he worked on all the structures mentioned by Jesus in his parables, as well as wine presses, millstones, olive press stones, tombstones, cisterns, farm terraces, vineyards, watchtowers, house extensions, etc. So, when we think of a carpenter, we think of like kind of someone who's very uh, skillful in creating like these, maybe a chair or, or some type of, you know, um, you know, um, chest, 
But what we're talking about someone who's actually like a, a builder, who's, who's involved in, 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 a, in, in creating and updating a house or, or a tombstone. Jesus was actually basically a blue-collar worker and a crafting builder who worked with his hands and was involved in building projects throughout Galilee. Now, why is this interesting? The question that we have to ask ourselves is, why, why would God choose this job, this vocation for Jesus? Why not have Jesus follow the same path as his cousin, John the Baptist? Why not have him be like a Nazarite prophet? Wouldn't that have made more sense for someone like Jesus to appear preaching in the wilderness just like his cousin? Or maybe, you know, go through the traditional, you know, uh, training as a teacher of, 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 of the Torah. Why was it that God purposely sent Christ in this line of work? You know, Jesus, um, prior to his three years of public ministry, Uh, Scholars estimate that he had about 18 to 20 years of work experience. This is because, um, and and Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, he writes this. Jewish boys were sent to school, usually in a synagogue, if if one was available, from ages 5 to 12 or 13, studying the Bible exclusively. At the beginning of adolescence, education usually ended and boys learned to train, often their fathers, so sometimes they've worked as an apprentice to another man. For, so from the ages of 12 to 13 to when he entered ministry, which is about 18 to 20 years, Jesus worked as a builder. That is a significant piece of Christ's life. And we have to believe that that experience was part, again, of his formation, of his preparation for the ministry. Jesus experienced some of the same challenges that we face, some of the same things that we go through in our work. He had to learn his craft. He had to endure long hours, tiring hours building. He probably had to travel, work, and there there was a nearby city, a capital called Sephoris that was a capital of King Herod Antipas, And and he was known for building projects. And so most likely Jesus traveled and did work as well. We we. Scholars believe that Joseph, the father of Christ, died at an early age. And so Jesus probably experienced being head of family and having to provide for his family. And so what we see is that in the teaching and preaching ministry of Christ, Jesus is often using work examples when he preaches. He shares from work experiences. Now, when I preach and share, I share about things I'm interested in. You know, I'll talk about basketball or SpaceX and things that I, I like. I won't use, an, as an illustration, a, a foreign movie clip because I don't watch foreign movies <laughs> like Dr. Steve. I know for Peter, Pastor Peter, his cancer journey was formative, and I, I know that he's shared from his life about what he learned through that. So when Christ... When he, when he taught, we, we see that, especially even in the parables, that 32 out of 37 of his parables use work roles and work activities. That's over 86% of his parables are coming from work examples. 
50% of his parables are in a business setting. And when you study actually the actual words that he uses, Jesus actually uses some very technical terms, technical business and finance terms that you couldn't know how to use unless you had expertise in the area. So he, he uses this idea of release from a debt and loan in Matthew chapter 6. He talks about a, a P&L assessment, a profit loss assessment uh, in Matthew chapter 16. He talks about wages as reward in Matthew chapter 6. He talks about the receipt of closing an account, a bank account in Matthew chapter 6. And so these examples are examples, again, of, of Christ having experience and using terms that are very applicable. And, and people, when they listen to him, would immediately recognize, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. If I were to go to a healthcare industry and someone went up to speak, I would know immediately if they were an expert based on the way they talk and the terms they use, the lingo, they, the phrases that they, they would employ. I would know immediately if this person is a fraud or if he really knew what he was talking about. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says that, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Why do I go through all this? I, I want to share it because I believe that for Christ, his work experiences was part of his formation. It's part of his spiritual growth. You know, it was really interesting for me when I studied this for the first time. So, wait, you mean like in Luke 14 when he says, like, count the cost? That maybe he was the builder that was contracted. It's building the tower. And then halfway, the, the guy's like, I ran out of money. He's, he, he experienced that, maybe. Or maybe when he preached in the Beatitudes of the house that, that fell down because it was built on sand, maybe he was the builder that came in afterwards and said, hey, you got to build on stone because this house is going to fall down unless you build on a sturdy foundation. I don't know if these things happen or not, but I have to believe in those 20 years of work experience that God brought these things to form and, and prepare Christ for his eventual work in the ministry. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. The writer of Hebrews can say this because he says that Christ experienced what we experience. And yet he was faithful. He was tempted, and yet he was faithful. In these experiences at work, he was tempted, and yet he was faithful to obey God. And in the same way, we call on him when we need him. I believe that Christ used Christ, God used Christ's workplace experiences to form and grow him to the point when he was able to finish the final work of salvation on the cross. And if that is true of Christ himself, if that is true of Christ himself, then, may, then perhaps I have to believe that God is able to use my workplace experiences. What I go through on a Monday through Friday basis to also form and grow me into the image of God. Now, if this is true, then in what specific ways does God use our work to help us grow. If this is true, then how does God specifically use work to help us grow? Well, let's, we're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 7. 
And this passage um, is a very unique passage in that it summarizes the whole idea of spiritual growth and formation in the scriptures. The pro- what does it take to grow spiritually? If you were to ask, what does it take for me to, to, to grow and to be more like Christ, to mature in my faith? Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 7 would be a great passage to study. And I'm just going to highlight a couple things here. But this is what it says, starting in verse 3. It reads, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and, self, and self-control with steadfastness and, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm not going to tackle the whole thing, but in the very first two verses here, it sex, Peter sets a context of what it looks like to grow. And he says, guys, you have been given through God's power, all that you need, all that you need to grow into further godliness through his power. But it is not, it is not through our own effort. It is not through our own self-discipline. It is not through our own will by which we grow, but he gives us a clue in verse 4 that we grow by partaking in his divine nature and by taking hold of the promises that he gives us in that relationship. It's important to pause and to, to, to understand what he's saying here. He's saying that spiritual growth is not like receiving instructions from God and then going and applying it. But he's saying that the way you grow is that you basically participate and this divine power that is available to you only as you partake in this union with God. It's, 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 it's the same idea as what Christ mentions in John fifteen five when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In the context of work for me, I, I kind of thought of it Differently. I, again, I, I thought of it more as Sunday, like, oh, God empowers me, and I receive his word, and then Monday I go, and I try to apply it, and I'm off on my own, and I'm trying, I'm trying, God. I come back on Sunday. God, I failed, you know, and, and it was just like sending and coming back, and, you know, I was getting energized. And what Peter is saying here is that, no, we must go together with God. In the marketplace, we must go together with him, in union with him. And I believe that too many times as believers, too many times as believers, we do not invite God into our workplaces. We do not invite him to to come and and to, to be in union with him as we work. When we are able to, as we are in union with him, apply his promises to specific work situations, 
that is where we grow. That is where we are able to now further understand what it means to live and to to, uh, honor him through the work that we do. There's a couple words here, and and, 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 and starting from verse 5, Peter starts to kind of explain to us, okay, what does it look to, to grow? And so he starts with faith, and then he says, okay, let's add on to faith virtue. And this word virtue, it's, it's tough to, because we don't really use that word virtue a lot. Right? But this word virtue is, is in, in the Greek, is erite, and, and it's translated in, in the NIV as goodness. But it can be most closely explained as moral excellence. Moral excellence, virtue, moral excellence. And so in this ancient Greek word, arite, it means um, the rite of something is the highest quality state that you can reach. Uh, it, it, it means integrity, excellence, commitment. How many times in our workplaces are we challenged to do our work with excellence, with, with moral integrity? Not cutting corners, driving for optimal quality. I don't know about you, but I come face-to-face with many, many opportunities at work where I can either just do the status quo or sometimes just do a little bit more than the status quo. Especially in in the day-to-day work that doesn't seem that significant. Do I go the extra mile out of my Worship and an understanding of who God is. Do I go the extra mile to be excellent? I can, I can infuse my faith into my work. Peter says, from virtue, then add knowledge. Knowledge in, in the Greek is gnosis. It means general intelligence or understanding or knowledge of God or things that belong to God. Spiritual understanding. And on this topic of knowledge, I think it's easy for us, again, to bring back the whole sacred, secular divide. We, we tend to say that spiritual knowledge is, is knowledge of the Bible or theology. But let me, let me, let me say something that I, I, I believe, I believe honestly that the knowledge of God, when we say that it's just the Bible or theology, that we limit what, what the knowledge of God truly is. That we don't consider the arts or math, or sciences, or architecture, or history, or, or all academics, in fact, to be under the domain of God's knowledge, under his created order. When we do that, we limit God's power and reign over the entire universe. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. When SpaceX figured out how to land a rocket, they arrived at God's knowledge. First Kings chapter 4, verse 29 to 34. This is what it says about Solomon. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the, people, all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrite, and He-Man, He-Man, Kalkal and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame 
was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. What does this passage show us? When God gave, when God granted Solomon knowledge, it wasn't just spiritual. He didn't just write nice spiritual proverbs and Christian songs. He suddenly understood the universe. He He understood how trees work and how animals work and Sciences, he began, his mind was expanded. We had to expand the knowledge of God. I think it's funny when I go to work and, you know, uh, all the leaders these days will say, hey, you know, there's this new concept that we're going to implement here at Blue Cross Blue Shield called servant leadership. And I say, that, that's, that's part of already the knowledge of God that I already know about. A couple more terms that I, I don't want too much time. Steadfastness. That original hypomene, right? Learning perseverance or endurance in the face of difficult or painful circumstances. Have you experienced any of that in your work? Have you had a tough manager? Have you been fired for unfair reasons? Have you been affected by office politics? Learn steadfastness in the midst of all that. Brotherly affection and agape love. This one area, I think, is the one area that I've been challenged with most. Prior to... Uh, my understanding of the theology of work, I actually either just saw people at work as just, and this is so sad that I say it like this, as just projects, people that I needed to witness to. Um, But through God's work in my life, I've begun to open up my heart to, to even form friendships at work and take an interest in people's lives. Learning to really care for people beyond even their interest in, in the church or in, in my life. But really learning to serve and love people. I believe that these are all opportunities that you and I have. And when we dismiss all that, and when we say this part, this is not where I grow. Where I grow is when I read the Bible or when in the church, that we're missing out on a huge portion, a huge arena that God has brought into our lives for our growth, and our spiritual formation. Let me end by sharing just one application that has been crucial for me and pivotal in my life. In my seminary class for spiritual formation, our seminary uh, professor, our professor asked us to do one thing, and he asked us to pray a prayer of presentation every morning. He called it a prayer or presentation. I said, what's a prayer or presentation? It's a very simple prayer. It says, he said, just say these words. Lord, I am here. I present myself to you. Here I am. And when he first gave us this prayer, he said, pray this prayer. First thing when you get up every morning. I thought, that's, that's interesting. Okay, you know, it takes five seconds. I can do that. So every morning, I get out of bed, I'm all groggy. Lord, I'm here. I present myself to you. Here I am. Lord, I'm here. I present myself to you. Here I am. 
God used that one discipline in my life and that one act of prayer. Sometimes I would do it in the shower. Sometimes I would do it in the train on the way to work. But that prayer became like this hand up to God. I said, God, let's go together to work. I'm ready to go with you today. I'm presenting myself to you so that you can use me today. From that place, it started to open up other places of prayer for me. Where for the first time, I actually prayed about work issues. It's not wrong to pray for God's success in your, in your work. God, grant me favor with this one person. God, would you give me a solution to this one problem I have? Because I don't know how to solve it. We don't only, we don't only get to ask for God to give us solutions and wisdom for, for spiritual issues in the church. We can pray about those things even at our work. And when things went well, I acknowledged God. God, you gave me success. You were the one that, that, that provided that for me. And I thanked them. My hope is that perhaps some of you will practice that tomorrow morning and that you will present yourself to God and you will start to look at your workplace as an avenue for your growth, for your sanctification, and you will not dismiss this big chunk of your life as an avenue for God's work.